a small group today. Uh, don't have to do any intro. We all know each other. Yes, we do. Um, yep. What we're going to be focusing on today, uh, I want to talk about first, is uh, Night Strike, although it's a combination of various martial arts, because of my main focus is Krav Maga. So Night Strike is largely focusing on Krav Maga and self-defense. Krav Maga, as uh, some of you already know, is originally a military martial art. That means a lot of the stuff we do are uh, associated or focused on working with other people. May it be a partner, comrade, uh, hostage rescue, uh, protect your loved one, stuff like that. So. Today's conditioning, we're going to start with conditioning. It's a, I know you guys all love that stuff. <laughs> we'll focus on a lot of partner workout and stuff like that, so everyone get comfortable working together. I know you guys are already comfortable working together. Um, and then we'll move on to some basic striking stuff, and if you have time, when you get to that end, do 10 squat, and then come back here and 10 squat. Caroline can take a break for now. Yay! What? Come back, come back, come back. We never have the whole thing. Come on. push come in, you want to lean your weight into it a little bit, mm -hmm. just so you don't bounce right off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then as you're moving, you sink your center weight down, so you don't do this. Yeah. But the minute you start to do this, it's when the other person is going to drive you back. Yeah. And this is useful in that a lot of fights start with shoving. Yeah. Especially for like when guys attack guys anyway, you know, you all, there's a lot of shoving around before they actually throw a punch. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if someone shoves you and you can stay firm, that sometimes will discourage the person. Mm -hmm. you know, right away they know it's not going to be easy. <laughs> Different ways of um, applying force in a striking. Clement? Yep. I'm up. Tighten up. Does that hurt? A little bit. Does that hurt? Yeah. So that's what we call hard force. Okay, that kind of force in uh, Chinese culture, Japanese culture, it's, it's, I mean, when Clement knows about the hard and the soft form. Hard form is all about making that impact, that boom, that sound, right? Okay? Yep. But if you guys see, okay? Hurt, right? But he doesn't move, right? He doesn't stagger him back. God. Right? No, 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 exactly. Hold it. Does it hurt? No. No? But he staggered back, right? That's soft force. Okay? Soft force is about how to apply energy without doing that impact. So, if my goal, and quite often in a fight, 
especially for you guys who can see, your goal is to get away. You want to be able to apply that force to move the person out of your way. What you need is a soft force rather than hard force. Because if I just punch him in the face, he may fall down, but he may just hit me back. But if I just do this, I create this much distance right away. Right? Same thing. That's, I'm not going to hit him in the face, but if I do boom like this, that's hard. Now that's going to hurt. But I may piss him off too. But, right? Again, doesn't hurt, but it creates a lot of distance. Right? Shoulder, same thing. If I just boom, punch him in the shoulder, doesn't move. Yeah? Yeah? No impact, but it moves him. Welcome back to the Johnny Tiger Experience Podcast. The best podcast in the world. <laughs> Episode 50. Today's quote. Many of life's failures are people who didn't realize how close they were to success when they gave up. I am Johnny Tiger, and this is my reality.
只想唱这一首老情歌，让往事回荡在四周，把事到如今。已无所可求，那是我唯一的解脱。人说情歌总是老的好，走遍天涯还将忘不了。我说情人却是老的好，曾经沧海。Wow, and it is episode fifty. For some reason, that sounds like it should deserve some kind of title or special occasion. After all, fifty, we are halfway to one hundred. Once I get to one hundred, then we can call it quit. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm pretty sure that the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast will be going much longer than one hundred episodes. After all. I'm long-winded, and I always have something new to say. You know, teaching martial art is not as cut and dry as many people think. We get hit with a lot of really ridiculous comments and questions that we have to try to bite back a snarky response to. I remember just the other day, a student of mine, he said to me, he said. I am thinking, after all this hard work, I only have a couple more years to go. I was like, "What do you mean? Oh, you only got a couple years to go?" He said, "Well, I've been with you for so many years, and I figure, with my current progress, in a couple of years, I'll reach my desired body shape. I'll reach my desired weight, and I will reach my." Desire to rank, then I'll never have to do this again.、Uh -oh. In my mind, I was thinking, if in two years you're going to quit and not do this ever again, 
you might as well quit now, so you don't end up wasting your time and my time. Because we all know, or are we supposed to know, that something like this is an ongoing progress. Once you quit, once you go back to being a couch potato, very quickly you lose whatever muscles, whatever skills you've gained. It is not something like a hammer. Once you bought the hammer, you leave it in your toolbox and never have to touch it again until you need it, and it will always be there. It is more like a good knife. If you want that knife to stay good, you got to pay attention to it. You got to sharpen it, hone it, oil it. Otherwise, 10 years later, you take out your good knife, it may be nothing but a knife-shaped pile of rust. That comment wasn't even one of the most ridiculous one. I remember one day I was standing out at the front desk at our martial arts studio, and this mom came in. That's the best way I could describe her, a mom. And she came in, approached our receptionist, and she said, Well, excuse me, I would like to enroll my kids in your program. And the receptionist said, sure, okay, uh, here's the form, what would you like to do? And the mom said, well, but first I want you to um, understand, I don't want my kids fighting. Of course, the receptionist said, well, of course, here at the studio we teach them to be responsible with the skills they learn. They are not encouraged to go out there and take fights with people, or anything like that. The mom said, You don't understand. I mean, I want my kids to learn your martial art, but I don't want him to come in here and end up sparring or fighting other kids. I don't believe in that. There was a very awkward pause before the receptionist said, Ma'am, you have to go elsewhere. We don't know how to teach your kid if you don't want him to spar or do anything physical with other kids. <laughs> this may sound like a really, really stupid kind of thing to most of you. After all, we all have common sense. But it does lead neatly into today's Ask me anything. Find the keys to your heart. There's a questioner that asked the following question. Is there a practical self-defense system I can learn that will not subject me to bodily harm? It disturbed me when I see this kind of question. Uh, because this is such a prevalent mentality with people. People want to learn how to protect themselves. People want to get in shape. People want to learn to do this and do that. And people want the easy way. And I'm here to say there is no such thing. No, 
there's no easy way, no easy way out, like the Rocky theme song. You want to do it, you have to clock in the time. You have to shout out the money. You got to survive. You got to survive the pain. You got to take the pain. Mentality like this is why there are so many phony self-defense instructors and phony martial art instructors out there, promising if you pay five hundred dollar for their ten、uh, set of ten DVDs,、uh, you can.、Uh, Sit at home in the comfort of your home. Learn how to be like a special force uh, uh, soldier. No, you can't. You may be able to watch a series of DVDs. You may be、uh, listen to. You may be able to stay, sit sit at home, listen to some random blind guy talking about martial art. But at the end of the day, you still are no. Not much closer to being able to defend yourself than if you actually get out of the house, go on the street,、uh, and find a gym, walk into that gym, and sweat and bleed like all the rest of us who have been training. And those of us who has been training, we are nowhere as good at self-defense. As people who actually go out on the street and have to get into real fights, or people who have to get into dangerous situation because of their career, so most of us in the martial art world, most of us in the self-defense world, we are nowhere as good as a real soldier. We are nowhere as good as a police officer. We may know more tricks, we may know more fancy stuff, but when it comes down to it, those are the guys who actually have to put what they learn to the test almost every day of their life. So just sitting at home and study and read and listen and watch will never prepare you for that first time you get punched in the face. Will not prepare you for the first time you get thrown to the ground. Will not prepare you for the first time when a punch is actually coming at you. It will not prepare you for that first time when someone really angry and really intending on doing you harm is charging at you and wanting to bash your head in. No. You will know all the philosophy. You will learn all the names of the cool moves. You will know what is a what what look like armbar. You will know what look like a clinch. But in the end of the day, the only way to learn is to get in there, get your hand dirty, and get bruises and scratches and con-、uh, contusions and concussions. That is the only way. Ever. To learn real, practical self-defense, or to learn how to fight. So stop looking for that shortcut. Stop waiting for the day that you are fit enough to do it, because you will never do it. Get out there, get in the gym, sign on with a membership, or do pay as you go, whatever. 
and do it and get fit, get good while doing it. Don't just sit at home and think this is a way to do it, or there is a shortcut, or there is an easy way. Because in the end, there is no easy way out. You are listening to the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast, the most chaotic and fun-filled podcast around. Hi. I am Allison, and I am here to tell you of a great way to help out your favorite podcast. Hmm, which podcast is that? Of course, this one. <laughs> Even though robot beauties like myself don't eat much, we still like to feel appreciated. Show your support by making a small monthly contribution. Go to www.patreon.com/johnnytigerexperience. Again, please visit www.patron.com slash Johnny Tiger Experience. Melodies of the Orient, where music promotes harmony. Melodies of the Orient. This is the segment where I talk about Chinese, Oriental, Taiwanese, Cantonese, other Asian music. I always say that. There are so many things that set us apart, but music is something that we can all learn to appreciate. Music is something that can go across cultures, even when we don't understand the language, when we don't know the instrument, we can still appreciate good music. Thus, I believe it is crucial to share music from different cultures with everybody. In today's melodies of the Orient, I want to introduce you to、uh, one of my childhood、uh, staples. I guess、uh, his name is Emo Chow. Yeah, Emo. <laughs> I always say that a lot of time,、uh, Chinese people, Japanese people, they don't really know the meaning of a word. They just know that it. It's popular and it's catchy, so they use it in their name, and turn out to be something、uh, quite ridiculous, like broccoli, or in this case, emo. Emo Chow,、uh, like I said, was a childhood staple. He is currently 57 years old, and he was born in Hong Kong and have later. Moved to Taiwan, where he got his education and started his music career. Later, he moved to Canada and married a Canadian Chinese woman, and they have a son and a daughter. Why was emo one of my childhood staples? Well, to tell the truth, I don't know, because I never、uh, quite. Find that emo to be exceptional as a musician, but he had a knack to pick some of my favorite songs. He was a very very good songwriter, and even for songs that he didn't write himself, he was extremely good at picking good materials. As a result, even after I started my band, the many many songs I have covered or transposed. That were originally emo's material, such as the first song 
I'm going to share with you, called Friends. Many of you may have remembered that several years ago, I wrote a song、uh, for my now deceased good friend Lenny. The song was called "Friend," and it was a transposed version of Emo Chao's "Friend."
Out of all emo child songs, this next one I'm about to show you has the most sentimental value to myself. In the summer of 1998, when I was but a teenager, I forged a friendship with a stranger from across the sea. Sitting by a campfire, he played the song on the guitar. And we sang together. Thus, a bond was forged. <laughs> Just a campfire, two voices, a guitar, and an old tape recorder. In the winter of that same year, in memory of this brief friendship with this person, whom I probably would never meet again, I played a transposed version of this song in school. During a music contest, and it won my first vocal and guitar award, and got me a standing ovation. This song was later 
released with our Loveland CD as a bonus track called "Departure." The original song that sparked all this is by Emo Chow, called "Make Me Happy, Make Me Sad."
这样一个女人，让我欢喜，让我忧，让我甘心为了你付出我。Every year, on Liz's birthday, I give her a very special gift—a gift that cannot be bought. Every year, I record a new song just for her. This song will not be for commercial use; will not be released with any of our albums.、Uh, some of them were cover songs. Some of them were originals. This year. The new song I did for her was a transposed piece of one of Emo Chow's most popular song. You gave me a new purpose when my life has seemed so lost. You showed me possibilities when everything went wrong. So let us. Dream into a miracle for all to see. In brightest daylight, in darkest nighttime, you and I are meant to be. Won't you hear me? Oh, even when I'm alone, how much I love you, how much I need you, and how I want. Now, most, if not all, Chinese people know Emo Chow, and most of them probably only know him by one song, "The Heart of the Flower."
If you have been listening to Melodies of the Orient, you would know that I have an instinctual preference to Asian singers who can sing English songs. Now, it is not uncommon for some Chinese, Japanese singers to have one English song in their album. After all, that's what's fashionable in Asia nowadays. But Emo Chow went one step further and released an entire album of English cover songs. And now I'm going to play you one of these. It's one of my favorite songs of all time, and I think he definitely did it justice. Enjoy this rendition of "Knocking on Heaven's Door," and then we will be right back with this week's tales from the Far East. Zhao 
to Dr. C Feel like I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door contains some strong language and suggestions of a sexual nature if you are under the legal age or are easily offended please skip forward two minutes now right now still here okay then here we go and now a word from our sponsor welcome to the rail are you looking for love oh yeah we've got love what is it that you like about my tits you have construction tits. I sure do enjoy snacking on the pink velvet meat curtains. He masturbated in my inbox. Oh my lord. Are you looking for peace and tranquility? We got plenty of that too. You are nobody to me. I don't know you, but if I know anything about Mexican men, is that they are only out for one thing. So listen, Fleabag, leave me alone and stop messaging me or I'm going to mute you. I think you're full of shit. 
be honest. I don't like how you talk about women. I was raised by a woman. I got a daughter and all that. Nigga, fuck you, nigga. Fuck all that. You heard me? You bitch. I hope you know that it's only gonna get worse for you. What you did to me was not good, and you will pay for it. Or. Are you looking to extend the hand of friendship? You all either fucking get along with me on here, or mute me, or guess what? I will just fucking disappear and never fucking come on here ever again. Don't mind me, I'm using the restroom, I apologize. I normally don't do this on a question, but I wanted to get my feelings out. I'm obese. Would you sit next to me on a plane? Get on my thread, follow the rules. Smack that ass through it. All chatter, no text. So, if you're just looking to bone your way through a bunch of visually impaired bitches and hoes, or just wish to cast judgement on somebody for having a speech impediment, why not get Varail today? Varail is available from the Apple and Android app stores. No purchase necessary. Tales from the Far East. Legends long forgotten. Hello, Nihao. Welcome back. Welcome to Tales from the Far East, where I regale you with some fables and folklores in Asian cultures, primarily Chinese culture. But once in a while, I may talk about Taiwanese culture and Japanese culture and some stories from India, even. Today, we are going to talk about some unknown and forgotten stories. Fables regarding one of the world's most famous warlords, Genghis Khan. Now, Chinese people know Genghis Khan mostly as Chen Ji Si Han. People around the world know about Genghis Khan, so it is indisputable that he is definitely been one of the most famous warlords in our history. But what makes him great? Other than what you can read on Wikipedia and some of the larger informational historical websites, there are stories told from father to son, mother to daughter, for many generations, of why exactly was Genghis Khan one of the greatest warlords in history. Now, despite popular belief. Genghis Khan did not conquer China. The Mongolian that eventually took over China was actually led by his third son. But we cannot dispute that Genghis Khan did conquer most of that half of the world, and he was the first person to unite the Great Mongolian Empire, bringing all the warring tribes under his banner. It is notable that during the 5,000 years of Chinese written history, China has only ever fallen to foreign power twice. Once the Yuan Dynasty, ruled by the Mongols, and next was the last dynasty in China, the Qing Dynasty, ruled by the Jurchens. But enough history lesson. Let's talk about the great warlord. Genghis Khan. These stories mostly took place before he became the Great Khan, or even King Khan, or 
King Kong? Never mind. Uh, let's go into our story. It was once said that one Mongolian warrior was equal to twenty other warriors. Now that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but the story I'm about to tell you definitely illustrates why Genghis Khan and his warriors were so feared by their enemies. One early morning, Genghis Khan, alongside some of his bodyguards, two of his sons, and three of his most trusted warriors, were leading a herd of horses from their village to a different destination. There were about 500 warriors all together, leading the herd, protecting them from bandits and other tribes. Halfway to the next village, Genghis Khan's scout reported that there's a massive force ahead of them, numbering around 2,000 people. Genghis Khan decided to stay and fight, but as soon as the two forces clashed, he realized that they were drastically outnumbered, and well, they didn't know this term at the time, but. Outgun, so they fought and retreated, fought and retreated, and gradually they ended up on top of a hill overlooking the grassland. The enemy force surrounded the hills, and it looked like it was going to be a losing fight. Genghis Khan then commanded his three warriors to take 100 soldiers each. And retreated to a safe distance. But my lord said, "One of the warrior worriedly, 'We do not wish to desert you. We must stay and fight along your side.' Do not worry," said Genghis Khan with confidence. "You will only go a short distance. Make them think you have deserted my army, and when you see the great banner flying and the horn blaring." Come rushing back and annihilate them. While you're away, you will rest your men and horses. Make sure they are nice and fresh when it is time to strike back. Reluctantly, the three warriors took off with 300 soldiers, rushing off to different directions so the enemy wouldn't pursue them. Now the enemy did think about pursuing, but their chieftain thought that Genghis Khan himself was still atop the hill, and they decided to stay and try to see if they could capture Genghis Khan. Because if they could, then they would be able to wipe out Genghis Khan's entire tribe, or at the very least, demand a massive ransom for them to get their lord back. So the 2,000 enemy troops surround the hill, and Genghis Khan and his two sons only had 200 people on their side. The battle was fierce. Now, because Genghis Khan and his remaining forces held the high ground, it was not an easy feat for the enemy troops to storm the hill. 
by late afternoon, the enemy troops had only 1,500 men left, while Genghis Khan's force was whittled down to 100. Please, father, said Genghis Khan's first son, we must blow the horn and raise the banner so your warriors know to come back and save us. Not yet, my son, said Genghis Khan calmly. Not yet. By late evening, the enemy forces had been whittled down to 800 men, and Genghis Khan's force was down to 50. Please, father, said his second son desperately. Please, let me rush down the hill so I can go alert our departed warriors so they can know to come back and save us. Not yet, my son. It is not time yet. By midnight, the enemy force was down to 500, but Genghis Khan's own force was down to measly 20 warriors, including his two sons, both wounded. Standing up tall at the top of the hill, Genghis Khan raised his sword and saluted his enemy commander. Out of nowhere, an arrow came out of the enemy camp and struck Genghis Khan in the shoulder. Gritting his teeth, Genghis Khan did not fall. Instead, he raised his sword higher, leapt onto his horse, and led his 20 men rushing down the hill in a wedge formation. The 20 of them carved into the enemy force with such ferocity that they decimated another hundred enemy soldiers before Genghis Khan commanded, Blow the horn and raise my banner! As soon as the great horn sounded and the great banner of Genghis Khan was raised, his departed 300 soldiers led by his three best warriors came storming back and together they completely demolished the enemy troops. An old Chinese proverb once said, A real hero is he who knows when to stand his ground and knows when to fold. If that is so, then Genghis Khan was a true hero indeed. It is said that one night Genghis Khan and his warriors were having a powwow with a rival warlord and his band. During the feast, the rival warlord had designed to humiliate Genghis Khan, or at the very least, weaken his force by getting rid of his three most powerful warriors. So this rival warlord, while toasting Genghis Khan, said to him, It is said that the great Genghis Khan is so famous and wins so many battles because he has three unbeatable warriors under his leadership. Genghis Khan just smiled and nodded, feeling rather proud. Now everyone knew that Genghis Khan was a proud man, he was quite prone to being arrogant, 
So this warlord then continued, "I heard all about your unbeatable warriors, but if you ask me, they are only men. They are not so invincible." Oh, Genghis Khan raised an eyebrow in response. "Yes, indeed," said the warlord, after downing another drink. I have a little challenge for your warriors. If they can meet the challenge, they would be true heroes, and their Khan would be the leader of heroes. If they fail the challenge or fail to meet it, they will be known from here forth as three cowards, and their Khan. <laughs> He didn't even have to finish his sentence. Everyone at the feast knew his meaning. Genghis Khan sneered and said, "Whatever you have in mind, my warrior will defeat your challenge." Good, good," said the warlord, laughing to himself, and clapped his hand. And as he clapped his hand. His escort brought forth three snow leopards on their leash. Snow leopards were fierce animals, powerful, swift, and extremely vicious. If your warriors are true heroes, said the warlord smugly, you will have them fight my leopard barehanded. After all. My leopards wield no sword, shoot no arrows, and wear no armor. Without missing a beat, Genghis Khan shook his head, put down his ale mug, and said in a loud, ringing voice, "Just so. Then from this day on, let it be known that Genghis Khan is the leader of cowards." Saying so, he led his warriors and departed the camp. His warriors were very perturbed by that. One of them said to Genghis Khan, "My lord, we would be glad to fight those leopards, if only to preserve your reputation." Don't be foolish," said Genghis Khan and smiled wisely. You are my warriors. You are my chiefs. You are my left hand and right hand. It would be complete nonsense to have you risk your life against some stupid animal just to prove a point. Obviously, for Genghis Khan to have been so successful, it wasn't just because he was. Badass in battle. I mean, there was that too. But to be the leader of an empire, he obviously had to have a lot of good people working for him. Now the question would be, why would so many good people be willing to work for Genghis Khan, especially in a society where every clan was out for its own back then? Perhaps the following story would illustrate why so many people, Chinese and Mongols alike, 
worked for this fearless leader. One evening, Genghis Khan and his stepbrother and stepfather were having a feast in the tent when an outrider dashed in, covered in dust and blood and mud. How dare you? said Genghis Khan's stepbrother. How dare you disturb our feast? Take this man out and have him flogged. Wait, said Genghis Khan, looking at his men. Man, what happened? My lord, said the outrider, I have failed you. How so, said Genghis Khan, calmly, without emotion. My squad was ambushed when we were scouting ahead with our herd of horses. My men were all wiped out, only I survived. But my lord, I was able to kill off one third of the enemy force and I preserved every single one of our horse. You did not fail me, said Genghis Khan. You did well. Nonsense, said Genghis Khan's father. This man has lost all the men under his command. He should be executed. No, father, said Genghis Khan. He fought bravely. The battle was not meant to be won this day. We cannot blame him. At least he saved the horses. Give this man a drink, said Genghis Khan. Hearing so, the outrider stood up, bowed to his lord, went over to the table, and reached for one of the golden goblets that the lords were using for their ale. Put down that goblet, said Genghis Khan's stepbrother, leaping to his feet. How dare you touch the golden goblet that only reserved for those of us with station? You presume too much. You are just a lowly outrider and a failure at that. Trembling in anger, the outrider glared at Genghis Khan's stepbrother, but because of the difference in rank, he didn't dare say anything. Just as he was going to put the goblet down, Genghis Khan commanded, Bring the goblet to me. I will have that drink. Bowing to his lord, the outrider brought over the ale and Genghis Khan drank it down, threw an arm around the outrider's shoulder and led him out of the tent. Outside the tent, the outrider still looked very much offended. After all, he just risked his life and protect the horses and he just lost his men and yet he was insulted in front of everybody by Genghis Khan's stepbrother. Leading the outrider to the campfire where the common soldiers were drinking and gambling and chatting, Genghis Khan raised his hand and demanded for silence. This man is a hero, said Genghis Khan patting the outrider on the shoulder. He has saved our horses and fought bravely to avenge our fallen this day. Bring 
my war helmet," he commanded, and his squire brought over his great golden helmet. Fill it with ale," commanded Genghis Khan, and the squire filled the golden helmet with ale, and Genghis Khan himself presented the ale-filled helmet to the outrider. Drink, my brother," said Genghis Khan. "Drink out of my helmet, for this is much more deserving of a man of your pride and talent than that stupid golden goblet in there." With tears in his eyes, the outrider downed the ale and handed the helmet back to Genghis Khan. Without ordering to have the helmet cleaned, Genghis Khan set it upon his own head and turned to his men who were watching with admiration. From this day on, I will wear this helmet, and know that a great man has drank from it. And this is probably why so many men followed Genghis Khan without reservation. I think a lot of employers today can learn from his example, don't you think? Now, when Genghis Khan was attempting to unite the Mongolian people, he met a great deal of resistance. After all, most of the tribes were used to the old ways. To them, my horses are my horses, your horses are your horses until I steal them away from you. And if you are not strong enough to hold on to your own horses, then you deserve to go hungry. That's the way it is. But Genghis Khan had a different idea. He believed that as long as Mongols did not waste time fighting Mongols, the entire world would become a free range for the Mongolian people. And he believed that the weak, the elderly, the disabled deserved to live as much as the proudest warriors. So why not have everyone? Band together, share in wealth and glory, and move on to conquer the rest of the world. His attempt in uniting the Mongolian people eventually set him at odds against the Ironshot tribe, which was actually the largest clan at the time, outnumbering Genghis Khan's forces by the scale of. One to twenty. The Ironshot clan hatched a plot to get rid of this great lord wannabe. They sent Genghis Khan an invitation, inviting him to come to their clan home to have a feast. On the way, they ambushed. Genghis Khan and his escort, and it was pure luck that Genghis Khan did not fall to this treachery. Instead, he captured one of the commanders of the ambushing forces, 
the commander was the son of the Iron Shot clan leader. Rather than having this enemy commander executed, Genghis Khan had him brought to his own tent that night, took off his bond himself, and invited him to sit by his side at a great feast. Genghis Khan said to the enemy clan leader's son, I didn't know that your clan feel so strongly about my idea to unite our people. I apologize for having offended your clan, and I wish to make it up to you. Tell you what, I will marry my daughter to you, and in addition, I will give you a thousand horses, five hundred bars of gold, and all I ask is you guys do not attack me again. The son of the enemy clan leader was very, very happy. After all, Genghis Khan has just shown himself to be a coward. He didn't want to fight, and the son felt that he definitely got the better deal. After all, he's going to get Genghis Khan's beautiful daughter, one thousand horses, and five hundred bars of gold. Genghis Khan. Ordered his escort to give this young man one of their fastest horses, and he said to the young man, "Go back and let your father know that in a week's time I will deliver the gold, the horses, and my daughter to you guys, my very self. Please have the celebration ready, for when we arrive, we will." Eat and drink, and speak of glorious days. Now, one of Genghis Khan's own generals was very, very unhappy. So he stormed into Genghis Khan's tent and yelled at the top of his lung that this enemy commander should be executed, that the great Khan should not try to negotiate with his enemy. Enraged. Genghis Khan ordered to have this general stripped and flogged in public to satisfy the enemy commander. After the enemy commander, A.K.A. the enemy clan leader's son,、uh, was back with his own people, he spent a great deal of time convincing his people how weak and useless Genghis Khan was. And he told them that in a week's time, Genghis Khan was going to bring the gold and horses and his daughter, and then they will set another ambush. And this time, they will kill Genghis Khan and keep everything that belonged to him. Second day after releasing the enemy commander, Genghis Khan called the flogged general to his tent. And he got down on his knees and apologized to the general, saying that he had him flogged only in order to trick the enemy commander. And now it is time to strike. In the dark of the night, this general 
now promoted to be one of the horse lords, was going to lead Genghis Khan's entire army himself and descend upon the Iron Shark clan and wipe them from the face of the world. And indeed, the Iron Shark clan was so secure in their power and Genghis Khan's weakness. After all, they believed they had about a week to prepare for the celebration and the ambush. They never expected Genghis Khan's entire force to descend upon them. And the battle was a bloody one and a short one. Thus was Genghis Khan able to destroy one of the largest rival clans and secure his hold on the emerging Mongolian Empire. Chinese lessons at your fingertip. Hello, Ni Hao. Welcome back to Mandarin 101. This is a segment where I share with you some of the basic vocabularies and phrases in the mother tongue of all Chinese languages, aka Mandarin. Uh, disclaimer as usual, I have taught English in the past. Uh, even though I am not a professional teacher of Mandarin, but my English is almost as good as my Mandarin, which is not really saying that much. Anyway, today we are talking about uh, countries, nations, and stuff like that. Maybe later on we will do a segment on the basic structure, like governments and uh, other things within the country. But today let's concentrate on countries, nations. Now, uh, as I already said, my Mandarin is not perfect, and there are a lot of country names that I do not know. So, unfortunately, I won't be able to give you the vocabularies of all the countries in the world, but I will do my best to cover most of the uh, more common ones. Starting with my own country, Taiwan. Uh, this one's very easy. Okay. Uh, Taiwan. Taiwan. Taiwan, T-A-I-W-A-N. Now, the only difference you will notice here is the tone. Taiwan is how you say it. When we say it, we say Taiwan. Otherwise, it's the same. Pronunciation, everything. Now, uh, nitpicking here, but Taiwan is actually the name of the island. It's not the name of the country. Uh, the countries is uh, actually the uh, uh, People's Republic of China or the Republic of China or something. Uh, it's, it's very similar to what China calls themselves nowadays. I can never get that straight. I just tell people I'm from Taiwan. Uh, but the official name for Taiwan country is Zhonghua Mingguo. Zhong, J-O-N-G, Hua. H-U-A Min M-I-N-G Guo G-O-U Actually, G-U-O, sorry. 
Now the word "guo" is very important when we talk about country because the word "guo" basically means nation, country. So many country names you will notice would have a "guo" in the very end, although not all of them will. China Republic, as I said,、uh, what Taiwanese call ourselves as a, as a nation. Now China is much easier, just called China. So you negate the two words in the middle and just take the first and last one, China. Japan, Japan, Japan. Ah,、uh, R E B A N. Japan. Japan means sun, the sunrise. Japan、uh, means original, originated. Japan means the land where the sun rises, or something like that. Korea, Han Guo, Han Guo, H U N, Guo. India, Hindu, I N G D U, Hindu. So like Hindu, just take away the H, Hindu. Thailand, Thai Guo. Again, Thailand, Thai Guo. Malaysia, Malaysia, M A L I C I A, Malaysia. Singapore, Singapore, taking the direct. Uh, intonation of Singapore, Sing S I N G, <coughs> Jia J I A, and P O Singapore. USA, 美国美国美 M E I translation into the beautiful country. Yeah, now that makes you guys feel good, doesn't it? 美国 May means beautiful. Brazil, Brazil, B A S E E, Brazil. Canada, Canada, J I A N A D A. Canada, Canada. Australia, Australia is a Aussie, Aussie, A U Aussie, J O U. Aussie means continent, land. Aussie. So since we are looking at the word Aussie, we might as well look at、uh, America, Aussie. Asia, Asia, yeah, like Y E A H, Asia. Europe, Europe. Africa, Africa. Britain. 
英国 ，y i n g， 国 ，France， 法国 ，Italy， 意大利 ，y e d a l i， 意大利。Russia， 苏联。Russia， 苏联。Tibet， 西藏。西藏 ，Tibet。Indonesia， 印度尼西亚。Five syllables， I N D U， or I N G D U。N E C I A， 印度尼西亚。South America， 南美洲。Taking the 美洲 from America and add the word for South， which is 南 ，N U N， 南美洲 ，South America。Cuba, Cuba. A lot of these are direct intonation translation, so they're very easy. Cuba, Cuba. Thank you for checking out Mandarin 101. See you guys later. 再见。Hi, I'm Johnny Tiger, your host. When I was growing up, I went to many different dojo, learned many different martial arts under many different senseis, and most of them sounded like this. But only at Richmond Martial Arts would I walk into this. Hey. <laughs> Just in case I give you a fright. There you go. Thanks. Mr. Tai, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? Hey, hey Johnny, how are you? Jose. Hey, how are you? Good. Lots of people there. <laughs> How's it going, Johnny? How are you, Johnny? Yeah, all right. Any dojo can take your money and agree to train you, but not many of them will treat you like family. Want to realize your dreams? Want to train in a friendly, professional, and encouraging environment? Contact Richmond Martial Arts today at 6042417624. Again, that life-changing number is 6042417624. Visit us at http://www.r.
I C H M O N D K I C K S dot com slash that's http colon slash slash www.richmondkicks.com slash mention the johnny tiger experience podcast for your free trial class when i first started the johnny tiger experience podcast i had great hopes for it i had ambition i thought this was going to be awesome i am going to run the only podcast the first podcast in the world that exclusively have interviews with blind and visually impaired and disabled martial artists and their teachers. Yeah, sounded great. Unfortunately, little did I know that I was setting myself up for failure, or if not failure, setting myself up with an extremely high bar to reach. See, here's the problem. The community of martial art related people in the disabled world is very small to begin with. And then we start to trim off those that refuse to be interviewed, those that don't speak English, and those that I just don't know about. It become a very minuscule population. And even when I start to sneak in their teachers and fathers and mothers and sisters and distant cousins, it's still not a very big pool to draw from. And all that preamble is to say, no, I don't have an interview for you this week, but what I have, hopefully, will be just as enjoyable. I have two clips that I want to share with you guys. The first one is a interesting little social experiment which yielded a very unexpected and heartwarming result. Enjoy. What's going on guys? It's Ryan from Hammy TV and today we wanted to do a little social experiment. Money makes everybody's true colors come out. What happens when you put money in visible sight? What we wanted to do today was take my car and put money where people could clearly see it. And we staged it in a few different locations. Some, the more wealthier part of town, and some, the more run-down part of town. Will people take the money? We're gonna find out. Buddy, excuse me. We're doing a social experiment right. for YouTube. What does that have to do with me? Well, we put the um, car right here with the windows rolled down and the money in plain sight to see if people would take it. Yep. We just watched you take it. So if we could just get it back. We got a camera guy here and over here. So we're done with cops. Are you guys cop. trying to get people in trouble? Like, no, not with cops. Like well, it was to see if people would take it. It's not yours. I don't know why you took it, but we're just trying to film. We just want it back. We're not with police or anything like that. So. All right, good. You know what? Here's your money. Go get a real job. He's coming back. Oh, oh, oh. Buddy! Hey! Ryan, this guy's leaving. <laughs>
Buddy, hey, hey. We're doing a social experiment. We, we got a camera guy right here. We saw you take it. We just want it back so we can keep doing it. You know, you have to go somewhere else. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to be on video either, you know. All right. You need to go somewhere else to do this. All right, can I just get it back? Yeah, please. Thanks, Thanks. Be careful with that, man. All right. Yeah. Okay. Buddy, hey, we're doing a social experiment. Oh, okay. Uh, we just wanted to put the money up and just see if like people walking by might like take it. Right. Um, so, I mean, I saw you obviously like reaching in. Is it cool yeah. if I can just get it back? I don't want to like, we're not like with like the cops or anything like that. We're just. I put it in your glove compartment. The in money? The glove compartment. I put it in the glove compartment. I didn't know it was your cops. If you're in a bad neighborhood, you shouldn't leave money out like that. Where? Oh, you didn't even take it? Didn't even take it. What's your name? Paul. Paul, I'm Ryan. And this is this is Brian. When I was over there, first thing I noticed is your back. I was like, please don't. I'm actually a veteran too. I was in the army for five years. I see all the patches and everything like that. And uh, I was in too. Did you go overseas or anything like that? Yeah, I was in the Persian Gulf War. Then I got to Navy. So you were all over the place. A lot of stuff I can't talk about. Staying at the River House shelter. The River House? Yeah. What is it though? It's a shelter. Like a shelter shelter? Yeah. You're homeless? Yeah. And you're a veteran? Yes. And discharged, honorably discharged. Yes. Very happy to meet you. Um, I want to uh, give you something. I know like obviously you got a lot of the, uh, the patches. Yeah, right here. So first, I don't want people to think we're doing a drug deal, but take this. That's a hundred, And uh, also, I was a military policeman. Yeah. This is the one that I used to wear when I was there. I was in Iraq 15 months, so not the same war as you. Right. Put it somewhere on there. Which one's this one? Saudi Arabia. Unbelievable, man. All right, let me, I'm gonna clear out the car because yeah. he's got uh, some of his equipment and then uh, we'll give you a ride. We're going back there anyway, it's getting dark. You ready? Yeah, I guess I'm You alright? Yeah. What's wrong? <laughs> Not that it's like nobody asked me how I've been or anything, so that's really got me all choked up. Yeah. Um, dude, I'm, I mean, it definitely hits home for me because, like I told you, we all go through that moment though where it's, it's seriously tough. Yeah. I think what the best you can do, man, is just keep fighting, dude. Come on. We've all been there, brother. Keep on fighting. That is such an important message 
and it is the message that I live by for most of my life. Just no matter what happened, no matter what other people do, keep on fighting. It is also what we teach our students in martial art, and more importantly, self-defense. But how do you keep on fighting if you have no control of your body? What can you do if you are a sentient mind trapped inside a body that is always at other people's mercy? This very inspiring TED talk sent to me by my good friend Charmaine, who is also a fan of the podcast, will. Give us a glimpse into the world of Martin Pistorius. Imagine being unable to say, "I am hungry. I am in pain. Thank you, or I love you." Being trapped inside your body, a body that doesn't respond to commands, surrounded by people, yet utterly alone, wishing you could reach out to connect, to comfort, to participate. For thirteen long years, that was my reality. Most of us never think twice about talking, about communicating. I've thought a lot about it. I've had a lot of time to think. For the first twelve years of my life, I was a normal, happy, healthy little boy. Then everything changed. I contracted a brain infection. The doctors weren't sure what it was, but they treated me the best they could. However, I progressively got worse. Eventually, I lost my ability to control my movements, make eye contact, and finally, my ability to speak. While in hospital. I desperately wanted to go home. I said to my mother, "When home?" Those were the last words I ever spoke with my own voice. I would eventually fail every test for mental awareness. My parents were told I was as good as not there, a vegetable, having the intelligence of a three-month-old baby. They were told to take me home and try to keep me comfortable until I died. My parents, in fact, my entire family's lives, became consumed by taking care of me the best they knew how. Their friends drifted away. One year turned to two, two turned to three. It seemed like the person I once was began to disappear. The Lego blocks and electronic circuits I'd loved as a boy were put away. I had been moved out of my bedroom into another more practical one. I had become a ghost. A faded memory of a boy people once knew and loved. Meanwhile, my mind began knitting itself back together. Gradually, my awareness started to return, but no one realized that I had come back to life. I was aware of everything, just like any normal person. I could see and understand everything, but I couldn't find a way to let anybody know. My personality was entombed within a seemingly silent body. A vibrant mind hidden in plain sight within a chrysalis. The stark reality hit me that I was going to spend the rest of my life locked inside myself, totally alone. I was trapped with only my thoughts for company. I would never be rescued. 
No one will ever show me tenderness. I will never talk to a friend. No one will ever love me. I had no dreams, no hope, nothing to look forward to. Well, nothing pleasant. I lived in fear, and to put it bluntly, was waiting for death to finally release me. Expecting to die, all alone in a care home. I don't know if it's truly possible to express in words what it's like not to be able to communicate. Your personality appears to vanish into a heavy fog and all your emotions and desires are constricted, stifled and muted within you. For me, the worst was the feeling of utter powerlessness. I simply existed. It's a very dark place to find yourself because in a sense, you have vanished. Other people controlled every aspect of my life. They decided what I ate and when, whether I was laid on my side or strapped into my wheelchair. I often spent my days positioned in front of the TV watching Barney reruns. I think because Barney is so happy and jolly, and I absolutely wasn't, it made it so much worse. I was completely powerless to change anything in my life, or people's perceptions of me. I was a silent, invisible observer of how people behaved when they thought no one was watching. Unfortunately, I wasn't only an observer. With no way to communicate I became the perfect victim. A defenseless object, seemingly devoid of feelings, that people used to play out their darkest desires. For more than ten years, people who were charged with my care abused me physically, verbally and sexually. Despite what they thought, I did feel. The first time it happened, I was shocked and filled with disbelief. How could they do this to me? I was confused. What had I done to deserve this? Part of me wanted to cry and another part wanted to fight. Hurt, sadness, and anger flooded through me. I felt worthless. There was no one to comfort me. But neither of my parents knew this was happening. I lived in terror, knowing it would happen again and again. I just never knew when. All I knew was that I would never be the same. I remember once listening to Whitney Houston singing, No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. And I thought to myself, You wanna bet? Perhaps my parents could have found out and could have helped, but their years of constant caretaking, having to wake up every two hours to turn me, combined with them essentially grieving the loss of their son, had taken a toll on my mother and father. Following yet another heated argument between my parents, in a moment of despair and desperation, my mother turned to me and told me that I should die. I was shocked but as I thought about what she had said, I was filled with enormous compassion and love for my mother. Yet I could do nothing about it. There were many moments when I gave up, sinking into a dark abyss. I remember one particularly low moment. My dad left me alone in the car while he quickly went to buy something from the store. A random stranger walked past, looked at me, and he smiled. I may never know why, but that simple act, that fleeting moment of human connection transformed how I was feeling, making me want to keep going. My existence was tortured by monotony, a reality that was often too much to bear, 
alone with my thoughts, I constructed intricate fantasies about ants, running across the floor. I taught myself to tell the time, by noticing where the shadows were. As I learned how the shadows moved as the hours of the day passed, I understood how long it would be before I was picked up and taken home. Seeing my father walk through the door to collect me, was the best moment of the day. My mind became a tool that I could use to either close down to retreat from my reality or enlarge into a gigantic space that I could fill with fantasies. I hoped that my reality would change and someone would see I had come back to life. But I had been washed away like a sand castle built too close to the waves. And in my place was the person people expected me to be. To some I was Martin a vacant shell. The vegetable, deserving of harsh words, dismissal and even abuse. To others, I was the tragically brain-damaged boy who had grown to become a man. Someone they were kind to and cared for. Good or bad, I was a blank canvas onto which different versions of myself were projected. It took someone new to see me in a different way. An aromatherapist began coming to the care home about once a week. Whether through intuition or her attention to details that others failed to notice, she became convinced that I could understand what was being said. She urged my parents to have me tested by experts in augmentative and alternative communication. And within a year, I was beginning to use a computer program to communicate. It was exhilarating but frustrating at times. I had so many words in my mind that I couldn't wait to be able to share them. Sometimes I would say things to myself simply because I could. In myself, I had a ready audience. And I believed by expressing my thoughts and wishes, others would listen too. But as I began to communicate more, I realized that it was in fact only just the beginning of creating a new voice for myself. I was thrust into a world I didn't quite know how to function in. I stopped going to the care home and managed to get my first job making photocopies. As simple as this may sound, it was amazing. My new world was really exciting but often quite overwhelming and frightening. I was like a man-child. And as liberating as it often was, I struggled. I also learned that many of those who had known me for a long time found it impossible to abandon the idea of Martin they had in their heads. While those I'd only just met struggled to look past the image of a silent man in a wheelchair. I realized that some people would only listen to me if what I said was in line with what they expected. Otherwise it was disregarded, and they did what they felt was best. I discovered that true communication is about more than merely physically conveying a message. It is about getting that message heard and respected. Still, things were going well. My body was slowly getting stronger. I had a job in computing that I loved, and had even got Kojak, the dog I had been dreaming about for years. However, I longed to share my life with someone. I remember staring out the window as my dad drove me home from work, thinking I have so much love inside of me and nobody to give it to. Just as I had resigned myself to being single for the rest of my life, I met Joan. Not only is she the best thing that has ever happened to me, but Joan helped me to challenge my own misconceptions about myself. Joan says it was through my words that she fell in love with me. 
However, after all I had been through, I still couldn't shake the belief that nobody could truly see beyond my disability and accept me for who I am. I also really struggled to comprehend that I was a man. The first time someone referred to me as a man it stopped me in my tracks. I felt like looking around and asking, who? Me? That all changed with Jonah. We have an amazing connection and I learned how important it is to communicate openly and honestly. I felt safe, and it gave me the confidence to truly say what I thought. I started to feel whole again, a man worthy of love. I began to reshape my destiny. I spoke up a little more at work, I asserted my need for independence to the people around me. Being given a means of communication changed everything. I used the power of words and will, to challenge the preconceptions of those around me, and those I had of myself. Communication is what makes us human, enabling us to connect on the deepest level with those around us. Telling our own stories, expressing wants, needs, and desires, or hearing those of others by really listening. All this is how the world knows who we are. So who are we without it? True communication increases understanding and creates a more caring and compassionate world. Once I was perceived to be an inanimate object, a mindless phantom of a boy in a wheelchair. Today, I am so much more, a husband, a son, a friend, a brother, a business owner, a first-class honors graduate, a keen amateur photographer. It is my ability to communicate that has given me all this. We are told that actions speak louder than words. But I wonder, do they? Our words, however we communicate them, are just as powerful. Whether we speak the words with our own voices, type them with our eyes, or communicate them non-verbally to someone who speaks them for us, words are among our most powerful tools. I have come to you through a terrible darkness, pulled from it by caring souls, and by language itself. The act of you listening to me today brings me farther into the light. We are shining here together. If there is one most difficult obstacle to my way of communicating, it is that sometimes I want to shout and other times simply to whisper a word of love or gratitude. It all sounds the same. But if you will, please imagine these next two words as warmly as you can. Thank you. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hey Bloop, have you heard about this new text-based RPG online? I have. I believe I know which one you're talking about. It's called Cyber Assault, and it's available at cyberassault.org. Is that the one you're talking about, Leap? Yes, it's really, really cool. And I like it a lot because it's a game that's set in the future where nuclear Apocalypse is happening. How exciting a nuclear apocalypse. We've seen a lot of nuclear apocalypses in our time. However, this text-based RPG is the most accurate game of all time. Very cool. Yes, and it has a cool character class that you can actually choose from, including Borg, Stalker, Caller, Crazy, and Mercenary. I really like the Borg. Reminds me of my robotic mother. 
Very cool, very, very cool video game. One more time, Bleep, what's the website? www.cyberassault.org. Check it out. It's free, so do it. You do anything for free these days, goodbye. A mobster has just realized that his totally deaf accountants have embezzled $10 million from his account. <coughs> Furious, he went to see the accountant, bringing an interpreter with him. He asked the interpreter to ask the accountant, where did he hide the money? The interpreter signed, in which the accountant signed back, I have no idea what he's talking about. The interpreter said, He has no idea what you're talking about. More furious than ever, the godfather whipped out a pistol, cocked back the hammer, and pointed it at the accountant's head. Ask him again, he said, in which the interpreter signed. He said he's going to kill you if you don't tell him. A very scared accountant signed back, Okay, okay. It's in the backyard, buried under the tree uh, at my cousin Enzo's house. What did he say? said the godfather. Oh, the interpreter said. He said you don't have the guts to pull the trigger. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, I totally didn't see that one coming. <laughs> It's an old joke, but it's a good one, and it's new to me. Anyway, before we end the show today, as usual, there's going to be a shout-out. This week's shout-out go out to Black Screen Gaming, BSG, Black Screen Gaming. If you are interested in games for the blind, interested in news and podcasts and blogs about some of the latest and hottest audio games available out there, check it out, www.com blackscreengaming.com With that, we reach the end of this very impressive episode. Episode 50, indeed. As usual, for more Johnny Tiger content, learn how to become a Patreon on our Patreon site. Go to johnnytiger.com You can find me on Facebook, YouTube, and other media. Just do a quick search and I should pop up where you least expect. Or you can just send me a message to johnnytiger at s-h-a-w dot c-a. That's j-o-h-n-n-y-t-i-g-e-r at s-h-a-w dot c-a. I will see you guys in the next episode. Down the
the sky. 